0: Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to RCR Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. And today we have a person that's uh, very well known. Uh, uh, he's had over 100 publications, 35 years experience working in his field, uh, uh, a physicist uh, living in North Queensland uh, and a place called Townsville his name is Professor Peter Ridd and we're honoured to have him here today clearly those of us who follow uh, climate policies and and, and political um, output from Australia we will know him well he's been through the mill he's standing tall for the truth about uh, the condition of for instance of the Great Barrier Reef and its coral and many other aspects of science and academia and and freedom of expression really uh as well so welcome Peter we'd love we're grateful that you've been able to get on the show with us or have you on the show um North Queensland's a lovely place but you've had some problems there in the uh, James Cook University and and your relationship with them over time um and you've had a long relationship with them uh in fact many since since you were a teenager effectively
1: Yeah, I joined James Cook University in 1978 and I was fired from James Cook University in 2018, uh, essentially because I was saying that the Great Reef is in very good shape and that the thing that is not in good shape is the quality assurance systems used by a lot of the scientists who claim that it's uh, badly damaged. And I was able to prove that, I think, without any shadow of a doubt, which, of course, made things fairly difficult. uh, and anyway we ended up at the high court which we half won and we half lost uh and now i'm free from the university system
0: well it's surprising looking at you uh over a zoom call you look surprisingly happy um i remember all the in those early days on television i watched you on outsiders and and, and sky news and different things and uh yeah you know, clearly you were put under a massive amount of pressure at great cost and it while you're you're talking as if you've had a Pyrrhic victory, um, that is a victory at great cost, uh, you know, how did you get through all that? Because uh, most people would weaken.
1: Well, I I had the Institute of Public Affairs uh, supporting me. And um, when we decided to go legal, it was pretty nasty. Uh, We thought there was no no choice. I was either going to get fired or I was going to have to just shut up. And I just couldn't live with that. My wife said, you won't be able to do that. You'll eventually speak out. Uh, so we actually did a, a GoFundMe appeal um, very early on for $100,000, and we got the money in 49 hours. It was quite remarkable how much support there was for people speaking out uh, in academia on these these things where you're really only allowed to say one side of the argument. And that I think made a lot of people, including me, but I, we were stuck. We thought, well, we we might get a thousand bucks, um, uh, but to get so much money so quickly. In the end, we 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 raised one point five million dollars uh, for the legal challenges. I still had to pay another three hundred grand out of our pocket, but nevertheless, one point five million dollars uh, from ten thousand um, supporters who, you know, mostly chucked in hundred bucks here and there, sort of thing. Um, that really makes a big difference to your ability to just keep going because you know there's a lot of people who are behind you, and you're you're in something that's quite important that people believe in right,
0: yeah, I know I'm aware there was several New Zealanders um put money in your in that pot and uh grateful to see someone like you stand up and at uh, all against the the might of. Uh, perhaps you might say other players and uh, not say I shouldn't call them bigger players, but perhaps bigger checkbook players. Um and so it's something that we need to sort of delve into a bit wider. Why was it that uh you know your your own employer and and where you were the professor of uh, physics uh decided that your output wasn't meeting their code of I mean was the code of conduct. Too over overbearing that you couldn't uh, express yourself fairly, even as a as a uh, head of department, so to speak. Uh,
1: yes, that's exactly the problem. So I've been working on the Great Barrier for thirty five years, looking at the oceanography, the way the water moves, the way sun goes in, heats up the water, and maybe causes bleaching, sedimentation, uh, designing instrumentation for monitoring monitoring the reef. Mm-hmm. So I knew a lot about it. And essentially, I was seeing again and again and again, terrible quality assurance. For example, there's a, an island uh, about 300 k's down the coast, which is surrounded by coral. And the people were saying, all the coral's gone. And you only need to go there to see that the coral isn't gone. There's a huge amount of coral. And so I said that there's a quality assurance problem that um, needs to be fixed and that, that these people are telling misleading stories because they're not checking their work. Now, that broke the code of conduct because I was actually um, impugning their integrity as a scientist, and I was. I was saying their quality assurance was hopeless, and there's nothing more insulting than you can say about a scientist that we can't trust your work, right? So there's no doubt that I broke the code of conduct. But on the other hand, I was doing my duty as an academic and a scientist to say, well, there's a terrible problem here, and by the way, that's being used. Your work saying this reef has been destroyed by farmers, by sediment coming off the land, mm. is affecting the farmers in a huge way because of all the legislation. So it wasn't like it was some minor academic argument. This was serious stuff. So in in the end, the High Court battle hinged around, did the Code of Conduct, which meant that I have to be nice and And friendly and and never upset anybody did that override my right to freedom speech academic freedom as an academic and the high court ruled in our favor on that they said there was no doubt that the university was wrong to censure me for that (laughs) but they said the university was able to get me for talking about the the, uh, disciplinary action that they mounted against me essentially for uh, making public their disciplinary action about their unlawful behaviour. So it was all very strange and all very one of those legal things, but we won on the main point. Yeah. Uh,
2: Peter, there would be others in your team who would be working on the same thing. Were you at that point the only person of holding the opinion that you did, that the barrier reef was in a healthier state?
1: No, certainly not. Um, there's quite a lot of us around, though we tend not to be in academia anymore. We're definitely in a minority because the whole of academia has exploded with people who think one way. Mm. Uh, but one of my um, main collaborators over decades essentially agrees with me on a lot of this, even though he might be worried about the climate change thing when it comes to a lot of these effects on the Great Barrier he agrees. So there's plenty of us, um, but we've more or less, uh, to a man, so as to speak, been excluded from the academic world, universities have really become a very one-sided
2: uh,
1: place.
2: But in the project, uh, and I don't know if I'm using the correct terminology here, the team that would be, you know, tasked with the job of, say, uh, looking at how well or how poorly the reef is doing, were there others who stood by you who felt that, you know, you were your your credibility was being called into question, and what you were saying is uh, right. Uh, uh- Oh yes, There's, there was plenty of
1: um, other Great Barrier scientists who agree that there is a problem. Uh, I mm-hmm. won't necessarily name them because they they may be you know right at this minute trying to work with the Great Barrier Marine Park Authority, and it's mm-hmm. very dangerous for them uh, to be able to do that unless you want to take the sort of risk that I ended up being forced to take, um, and you're at the end of your career, which I am. So it wasn't a big deal in some regards because you know retirement was close anyway. But there are them. But on the other hand, there is a huge consensus group, you know, a consensus group, which get together and write all the reports for the government, and they will always say the reef is completely doomed, it's completely stuffed, despite the fact that, uh, and this is the wonderful thing, since I was fired, saying the reef is great and there's a quality assurance problem in the science, the reefers in the last two years had record amounts of coral. We've never had more coral. On the Great Barrier Reef since records first started in 1985 or 86, so it's essentially proved exactly what I and other people have been saying that all the doom science about the reef is completely wrong. Because you know we've had all this climate change, bleaching, terrible events, never got more coral than ever.
2: Imagine and i i notice you use the term uh, quality assurance problem rather than you know yeah. I mean i would call it flat out lying but around the time you were fired that's <laughs> when out here we heard about uh, malcolm turnbull's captain call captain's call and what close to how many million was it nearly half a billion dollars was yeah, invested for- so were you the fly in the ointment so to say uh no, no not particularly there was i mean that was
1: strange because it was a liberal um uh, liberal National uh, politician. The people on the the left wing still criticised him for the way he did it. But yeah, for four um, four hundred forty million dollars. And by the way, that that's just the tip of the iceberg. I estimate there's close to a billion dollars every year going into saving the Great Barrier. It might be only you know half of that, but we're talking huge amounts every year that are being poured into it. the 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 scientific industry claiming that the reef is you know completely stuck. Is far bigger than the fishing industry. It's a getting on to approach half the size of the, the sugar cane industry. There's that many people whose jobs depend on the Great Barrier Reef being doomed. So this is why you're when you say the reef isn't doomed and there's a quality assurance problem, <laughs> politely, um, people don't like that very much because there's a whole lot of jobs that depend on it.
0: Well, it's interesting i read a quote um on will happer's um recent tour i, I watched his slides overnight and uh, i know you assisted will on that on that tour but he quoted aes puskin he said if there should happen to be troughs there will be pigs and uh yeah, that that is so apt here yeah. i mean you uh, you have you've, you've you've actually blown my mind i thought 400 million was a huge amount of money and it is uh to have that significantly enhanced and people are still feeding at the trough uh and the uh and and the coral reef is in or the great barrier reef is in rude health it just um biggest belief so you know aside from all of that the vilification of the farming industry interests us a lot uh we have the same thing here farming can be blamed for everything we have a resource management act that initially talked about uh, point source discharges and tidying all those up, and they were generally in towns and and cities and industry. But then it became apparent about six or seven years after the enactment in 1991 of this RMA, that cumulative effect was a big deal. So that meant uh, the whole catchment of a a water body, uh, well, it caught everybody guilty or not. And it sounds like that's what's happening in your neck of the woods as well. Um, can you just f- sort of expand a little bit on how this is affecting the farming fraternity?
1: Yes. I mean, everybody in the world knows that Great Barrier Reef has been killed by climate change, right? So, but also, and this is for probably 25 years, farmers are also blamed for killing the reef. So, sediment coming off, supposedly smothering the coral, pesticides and nutrient pollution, right? So, if we take one of those at a time, so the sediment, I was the guy who invented the instrumentation for measuring over long periods sediment around coral reefs. And we were able to prove without any shadow of a doubt that, firstly, there's no, you know, an insignificant amount of sediment that gets out to the Great Barrier Reef in river plumes, in floods, because the reef is genuinely a very long way from the coast. It's, you know, here it's over 100 kilometres to most of it. Um, The inshore coral reefs, which are not even the Great Barrier Reef, we're also able to demonstrate that natural resuspension of sediment was far more important than anything that came out of the rivers. All that work was ignored. But now farmers have got huge extra regulations on them because they're adjacent to the Great Barrier Reef. So this is, you know, uh, 1,500 kilometres along the coast, right into the, the Great Dividing Range. Every farmer now has these regulations. Another example is pesticides. So they're claiming that pesticides need to be cut, and of course, everybody wants to cut pesticides if they can. But if you actually look on the Great Barrier, and you actually take a bottle of water, which they do, which they do, you actually cannot even measure the pesticide because there is such ridiculously low concentration that even you know a part per trillion level, they're just not there. So farmers are blamed for pesticide pollution, even though you can't even measure that effect. So so they're very, very clever. What they then do is they say, oh, look, all these ecosystems are all connecting. So even the estuaries are important to the Great Barrier Reef, even though the reef is 100 kilometres away. So we can measure pesticides in the estuaries, uh, and therefore you're damaging the Great Barrier Reef. So they essentially catch you um, by these, quote, Frankly, ridiculous scientific arguments. And this is where the quality assurance
0: is the problem. So what? Have, so, so now I, we have. S- yeah, sorry. Excuse no, me. I, excuse me. I, I think it's nitrates that are the issue that uh, also a worry. Is that? Is that?
1: Yeah. So n- nitrates and, and phosphates, they say, is a problem. But when you actually take the measurements, there's a hundred times more cycling of nitrate of basically nitrogen across the seabed, completely natural. You completely naturally due to uh, resuspension events, than there is coming down all the rivers. And this is a very very open system. The Great Barrier Reef is flushed um, very rapidly. There's more water comes into and out of the Great Barrier Reef in just eight hours than comes down all the rivers in a whole year. So there's no possibility that these um, nitrogen or phosphorus fertilizers are
2: building up in the system. It's just ridiculous. But nevertheless, the farmers are blamed for that. And Don, I'm looking at the Australian Government's Reef Program and uh, on the agricultural.gov.au website. They say from 2008 onwards, for over the next decade, $158 million was spent on improving farmers' agricultural management practices and the reef catchments through grants to the industry. So there is that funding stream. And then it says farmers have invested an estimate of million for each dollar provided by the Australian government, another 140 million has been committed by the government, plus 53 million from the Department of Agriculture. So there is these gravy trains that are going through, and what Peter is talking about, there is this money flowing through, and we've we've seen how easily the ag bodies in New Zealand have gotten compromised. This funding for very niche research, which then prove gets the outcomes which are necessary to you know push the compliant machinery further. It's, it's staggering. And if I can add there, a lot of the
1: agricultural organisations have been captured by that government money. So a lot of that money flows in through the agricultural organisations, which means now those agricultural organisations depend on that stream of money of course. and are less likely to buck the trend. There are exceptions to that, um, but it is a huge problem.
0: Yeah, in in about 2007, eight in New Zealand, uh, a term came back with a couple of politicians and an NGO leader uh, that'd been to the Nordic regions and they came back with this new way collaborative model. And as a farm leader at the time, an advocate, I sensed that this was uh, uh, a divisive concept. And an onerous concept and it's proven to be that way so we've got all the farming organizations collaborating now and they definitely have the handout and they're in the hand of the regulator uh, more than they are representing their members and uh it saddens me that that's how easy it was to be captured by by the system so can we just move on a little bit uh to the topic of peer review um i mean it's it's Used as the um, as the beacon of everything uh, peer review uh, papers out of universities. Uh, and it's
2: like a quality uh, mark, isn't it? Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. uh, but but it just seems to be a bit tarnished in recent years. Uh, in fact, I think in one of your press releases, you talk about fifty percent of the po- papers uh, potentially are faulty, haven't had enough. Uh, is it called uh, re- reproducibility um, over there? content um have you got comments to make on the peer review process and and a, consequently another point uh could be the arxiv review process um organization as well can you make comment about those types of
2: um, yeah so peer review concepts?
1: is the main quality assurance system used to in, in science so you know they often talk it's the gold standard and believe me in science we have this huge quality assurance problem it turns out that when checks are made on peer-reviewed literature, when you actually do a real proper follow-up check, roughly about half of it turns out to have serious flaws. That's not me saying that. This has been repeated again and again and again in lots of fields of science. So peer review is a joke as a quality assurance mechanism. If Toyota used uh, peer review at, you know, such a hopeless system, One in two Toyotas would have a serious, like a really serious fault, but that doesn't happen. Now, most people think peer review is when maybe a dozen scientists pour over the work and they redo the experiments, they check the analyses. but it's not like that. It's usually just a quick read for a couple of hours by a couple of scientists who may even be your mates, and that's peer review. So it's little wonder that it's so wrong so often. So we have in science this thing that's now very well known, this thing called the replication crisis, where we know that a huge amount of the recent science uh, is wrong. Not the sort of the Newton's laws of motions and, you know, the really rock-solid stuff that's been around for a long time, but the recent peer-reviewed work is, is just completely hopeless, and that's the main system which we use. So scientists are certainly looking at this problem, like the, you know, the X-archive stuff, um, but I don't think they've they've appreciated the corollary of the fact that so much of the peer-reviewed work is wrong. It means that a lot of these huge issues like New Zealand farming or climate change, which are relying on the peer-reviewed system, must inevitably be compromised. We don't know just how badly because nobody is bothered to spend the money. So I've been saying, let's say for the Australian Research Council, we should be spending 10% of our research funds checking research doing quality assurance quality assurance actually costs money to do but we don't spend that's the other thing about peer review it's done for nothing by your mates when you pay nothing you you probably don't get high quality but that is the essence of the problem we have in science it is a quality assurance problem and peer review is part of that problem
0: and so linking to that um perhaps we have the royal society who i believe and i'm a layman yes. i thought oh you trust everything the royal society okay. um, puts out everything is trustworthy in the end and you you have a chief science advisor i think uh, i'm pretty sure i met one of them in the past um, and uh, we have one as well and uh they allow themselves to be seriously politicized uh so is the compromise at the Royal Society? Is there compromise everywhere? Where can we find um, people like you <laughs> that that stand tall on this stuff? How many? Yeah, where can we find enough of them to turn the tide?
1: There is almost no scientific organisation that is not now compromised. I mean, there are aspects of those of most organisations where there's still a you know a small group, but they're almost all in the minority. So all the uh, effort is coming from outside, you know, organisations with serious scientific clout behind them, like the Global Warming Policy Foundation in the United Kingdom or the Carbon Dioxide Coalition in the uh, in the United States. I mean, you should see the list of very eminent scientists there. They're mainly uh, retired, so they're not depending upon their livelihood now. Because this is the problem that the the gravy chain corrupts the the the, the scientists because they cannot speak out. I mean, the number of scientists that I've spoken to that. Will say, look, I agree with you, but, you know, I've got a mortgage, I've got kids at school, and I really can't afford to say a great deal. So the, the fight back is coming from outside the um, the main institutions, but it's being extremely effective. Uh, and you're seeing around the world, you know, a rollback. I, I think very important is that there's a Rasmussen poll in the United States that asked the people the question, do you believe that climate change is becoming a religion that is being used to control people? And 60% of Americans agreed with that. So despite this pile on by the scientific institutions, people can see that climate, this whole climate change thing is not just scientific. It's got a, a much more of a political, quasi religious almost uh, aspect to it. So just despite the fact that we are, we are small in number, and have almost no funds, were being incredibly effective.
2: Wow! And Don, doesn't this remind you of uh, the paper that we've spoke about uh, on, I think it was early last week, by the Greek researcher, Dr. John Oanides, I think it was, and he had written this paper in 2005, uh, which said why most research findings are false. He followed it up in a collaboration with others, which was about why innovation is not true. So, you know, how FDA and CDC, 75% of the drugs they have produced in the last decade are just repurposed. What you're saying, Peter, it just sounds to me as if, you know, I'm hearing an echo of those same things.
1: John Ionides is the uh, really the, uh, the guy who invented, for want of a better word, the replication crisis. He's the guy who blew the whistle on it. And this is, everybody knows this is true. Even the big journals that will will you know, sign up to climate change. They all know that the replication crisis is a thing, but they hide themselves. They stick their head in the sand when they look at what the corollary of it must be, which is that now you actually are struggling to have faith in any scientific institution because you know they're not checking it yeah. uh, well enough. Now that doesn't mean that everything they're doing is wrong. It's just that if there's a chance that what they say is right, well, you may as well toss a coin. You, you know, this is not science anymore. Science is about getting things reliably. Um, but I think that, that the COVID, um, the whole COVID response has has further shown that there are problems within the scientific institutions, that although a lot of what they did was was doubtless correct and, and right, a lot of what they did, they actually lied to us too, I'm afraid. Uh, and what this will ultimately mean is that more and more politicians are seeing we need a broom to go through the scientific institutions. Quality assurance systems need to be coming. Challenges, red teams, blue teams like Will Happer um, talks about uh, and to make science trustworthy again.
2: Yeah. and um, But you don't do it like the government has just done. What are they saying? The Australians, that $1.2 billion being given in this budget or oh, it's going to be spread out till 2030 or, yeah, for the reef? There, There goes any sort of credibility altogether. How well much? as I as I say it would only
1: to do a proper audit on reef sites and you know it, I estimate would cost you no more than a few million dollars I actually we had a Senate inquiry on this exact matter of quality assurance on the, the sites and you know the Australian Research Council says oh we can't afford to do all this quality assurance I mean can <laughs> you imagine Toyota saying we don't have the money to do quality assurance <laughs> I mean it's just a joke. You know, they get, the Australian Research Council gets, I forget the exact numbers, but maybe a billion dollars a year. And I'm saying to them, you should allocate $5 million every year, $10 million would be be better, just to do checks. Now, on the reef, a couple of million dollars would be heaps. Mm. You'd blow the whistle. But most importantly, now these scientists who can say anything and never be challenged because they own the peer review process, they own the consensus group, so they're never challenged, now they know they're going to be challenged. And Mm. now they have to become uh, trustworthy. At the moment, they can say the absolute ridiculous things. Like, for example, just the other day, a report came out saying dugongs, which are these big sea cows that eat seagrass on the reef, apparently they're in decline. Well, actually, there's 300% more dugongs out there now than there was in 2011. But nobody will ever challenge them because they own the peer review process. If they had to front up, every year to a Senate Estimates Committee saying, well, we've done the audit on this, you said this, it was wrong, what have you got to say for yourself? Now they would have to start to
2: become trustworthy again because it would be very embarrassing and funds would be withdrawn from And if the number of advisory or the committee membership of the Reef 2050 plan, if I just look at the big players, So leave alone, they've said the traditional owner groups, Ag Force. There is Ah, the Marine Park Tourism Operators Group. There is the Australian Institute of Marine Science. There's the Cane Growers. There's the Carefish. There is the Reef Marine Authority. There is local government, Queensland. Queensland Farmers Federation. Queensland Ports Association. Queensland Seafood Industry. And of course, World Wildlife Fund. That's always been a partner of United Nations and IPCC. Between all of these people, putting up 2 million is, is not a lot these if I add the turnover of all these groups that's a few billion dollars there if not tens of billions well can I can I say most of
1: those groups aren't supplying a brass razzoo, right all that money's coming from the government but mm. a lot of that money gets focused through into those them so of course yeah. they sign up right and by the way it's, it's a lot more than that right if you add up all the other way that funds go into the Great barrier it's a lot more than that but yeah, they are, not all of those groups are corrupted. But um, for example, the tourist operators, right? Mm. Now, you'd think that they'd be banging the whistle, but the reef is fine, you need to tell everybody. But they can't because every tourist operator needs a permit from the Great Barrier Green Park Authority to operate, right? If they get on the wrong side of the Great Barrier Green Park Authority by saying, we don't believe that climate change is killing the reef, the reef is fine, or whatever. Those operators can lose their permit. In addition, quite a lot of those operators are actually taking money to kill crown of thorns starfish, which is is a completely natural animal, right? We shouldn't be killing it. So, you know, many tens of millions of dollars goes in literally to hire tourist operators' boats to go off and kill these crown of thorns starfish. So the money is corrupted. The peer review process and the the total lack of quality insurance in science is corrupted. Uh, the only way is to have a complete new broom, go through, get quality assurance in, and start asking some really hard questions.
0: It is interesting. You highlighted one of the contradictions in recent months about the IPCC's um, uh, output, uh, talked about how coral reefs will lose, lose 90% of their coral with a trivial one5
1: percent
0: Oh, 99%. Oh, well. Right. Um, right. But in fact, and, and you, this is the. And, and you highlight that. I mean, yeah. You highlight that warming sorry. is actually good, sorry.
1: that That's right. A, a one-degree increase in temperature on the Great Barrier Reef will mean the corals, depending on where you are, will grow probably 30% faster. I mean, this is well known. You don't go to southern Queensland to see the best reefs. 1% increase in temperature in southern Queensland will make those reefs grow better, but it will make us grow even faster. So warming is a good thing uh, for almost every reef in the world, right? There are corals even down in New Zealand. They don't form reefs because they grow so ridiculously slowly, right? But there's corals more or less anywhere, and they need to be warmer to grow better. So the reef is actually probably the best example where you can demonstrate that, the, that the science is completely and utterly, ridiculously wrong because it's the one place where you actually expect climate change to do better, to make them grow better. Mm. And yeah. you
2: also use this uh, sentence, and I think I understand it, but uh, for listeners, uh, Professor, you said corals are cockroaches. What what did you mean by that? And I, I know a few, uh, you know, the sceptics group had a field day with that one. You can't
1: stop these things growing, right? I, I guarantee you, if you put a block of concrete at, down on the, on the bottom of the ocean, sink a boat or something like that, or in our case, put instrumentation out to measure it, which we did a lot, within a year, there'll be corals actually growing on them, right? You can't stop these things growing. You know, the Americans um, <laughs> set off these enormous uh, nuclear explosions on a on a coral reef out in the Pacific Ocean, in, in Etowah Atoll and Bikini Atoll. And within a few years, the corals are, are back there growing better than ever, right? These things have been around for a couple of hundred million years. Um in parts of Indonesia, they do terrible things to the reef, which, you know, we really look after our Great Barrier really well. But mm. in Indonesia, they've been using in the past explosives to fish, massive pollution, and yet the coral still grows. It's Great. definitely degraded. It's nowhere near as good as our coral. But you've actually got to quite, try quite hard to kill a reef, which doesn't mean to say we shouldn't look after it. We really want to look after our reef. But these are not little canaries in the coal mine that are going to just fall over that, you know, they say 1.5 degrees, 99% of corals will die. We're already at one degree, supposedly. So the next half a degree, we're going to go from record amounts of coral out there to 99% of it dead. What Mm. creature is so precariously on the cliff edge that it's going to die, especially corals, which have been through so much and can deal with temperature?
2: And that actually, I think that's one fact I didn't know. I remember biology lessons, what, a good 30 years ago, two things are stuck in my head. that The cockroach, I think scientific name is Periplaneta Americana. And the other thing I remember the teacher saying that we don't know whether they're super evolved or what, but the cockroaches, they've not changed. They're, you know, tough as guts, tough as they come. Yeah. And that no one, no one wants to talk about stuff like this. But uh, Professor Ridd, would you tell us what have you been doing now? because I know you work with the Institute of Public Affairs. Can you tell us about the work you're doing now?
1: We're we're pushing uh, this whole uh, science quality assurance problem whenever we can. So this is the root cause that our scientists are untrustworthy. I I hate to say it. Mm. I'm a scientist. I've been a scientist all my life. but, But as a profession, we are amongst the least trustworthy of all the professions. And that's saying something. Uh, so, it's essentially that pushing out the good news on the reef, working with farmers' organizations when we can um, to try to uh, put a bit of scientific rigor in what the other side is saying and defending the scientists, the, the farmers against this uh, very, very dodgy science. We've got this program called Reef Rebels. We're trying to get to younger people to tell them that the reef is actually doing very, very well. Uh, and we're doing a whole bunch of videos. Um, that, for Reef Rebels, and also Brilliant and Broken Science, showing, showcasing the wonderful scientific achievements that have been, but also some of the disasters that are happening, not just nowadays, but also in the past, where science has gone a bit wrong.
0: Right, and uh, you know, we've had Ian Plymer on the show, Professor Ian Plymer, and um, he's put out three books recently. We're really seeing an uptick in people like you and him and others starting to do this re-education program. Uh, clearly, we're, it's a massive task when you analyze um, the universities uh, that perhaps are resistant to uh, this sort of approach. So you know, how do you get this funded, um, uh, Peter? Because it's it's going to be seriously costly.
1: Well, eventually, and this is the other thing we're trying to do, eventually what's got to happen is that um, at the governmental level they've got to start doing these audits, right? Uh, We're having quite a lot of success, uh, at least in the opposition parties, the conservative parties, uh, convincing a lot of people there that there is a problem in the institutions and that you've got to tackle that. So uh, in terms of funding, there's no no funding at the moment coming from the traditional sources. But I think that's going to change, that as more and more people realise the corruption in science, mm. um, you know, the next Minister of Environment might well be able to find, you know, $10 bucks uh, to uh, do an audit of reef science, and that will be an absolute game changer. Mm. Uh, you're also seeing in the UK this idea that there's a problem with the scientific institutions. And so once the, the political realisation starts to happen, the public already know that scientists are untrustworthy because they, you know, these Rasmussen polls are, yeah. are showing remarkable scepticism despite the massive pylon. Um, once that funding comes through from the government, but not through the traditional sources, I think that the uh, there will be a complete change. But we've actually been surprisingly successful because we've got the truth on our side, and that's, uh, that's worth a billion dollars any
2: day. Right. That is that's good to hear. At least someone collaborating with some of these groups being affected, like farmers. And I, I especially as a mom of young children, I really worry about the younger generation. How they now have counselors for eco anxiety, believe it or not. The curriculum our schools have here. I've not looked on the Australian ones, but it is bringing climate change into every single thing. And that's yeah. you know you 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 get a get a set. The next generation would be completely. Petrified more than anything.
1: Well, that's true. And that's certainly what they're intending to do. And there's a good chunk of those uh, of our youth who feel exactly that. They're literally depressed. But there's a surprising number of them that know they're being brainwashed and are not buying it. You know, it's not half, Mm. uh, but I reckon it's a good 30 or 40%. And as time goes on, they're going to realize more and more. And as they get older and as You know, they'll look at, well, you know, a degree, it's not that bad, especially in, you know, the south south of New Zealand. I mean, is really a degree that much of a problem in the south of New Zealand? And that start of start reality comes into play. You're seeing it in Europe at the moment where they're winding back all these net zero things because they're seeing that this is actually ridiculous. So, yes, the brainwashing is a terrible problem. The universities are disastrous. The education system right around the Western world is a disaster. But I think that already you can see the wheels are
2: falling off. But that's, you know, you were saying that with a lifetime in academia, Peter, it it's, must be really hard to look back at the career you've given um, your all to like this.
1: Yeah, to, to see what's happened to universities, it's just a crying shame, you know. to They were places where, you, well, we did argue all the time in the 1990s on the Great Reef. We were arguing that sediment from farms was having no effect and, the other side was arguing the opposite. Nowadays, that argument can't happen. You, you just can't get funded. You you can't uh, you can get fired. <laughs> um, all these sorts of things can happen now, which they didn't have. How you sort out the universities, I do not know. Right, uh, but I do know how to sign to sort out the science problem.
0: Well, certainly in New Zealand uh, since the turn of the century uh we've had a gravy train around um the science of uh, greenhouse gases uh from animals uh it's now probably 700 million dollars in the bin um for, for nothing really uh we were all about efficiency in our animals and you know we've got very efficient animals as do many parts of Australia no doubt but yeah. um no we're spending hundreds of millions on this gravy train uh, on some sort of supposed crusade uh to to reduce warming um your work with uh the ipa uh, the institute of public affairs and you're an adjunct fellow there um is is um helpful you've just been on a tour with uh professor william happer around australia for a for a city tour it was called the crusade against co2 have you got any takeouts quickly for 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 our listeners from that tour that you think are critical
1: I think the crucial thing is that the you know the proof that that CO2 by itself you know it's really only going to it only has a very very marginal effect, uh, but I think the reaction to it has been to the tour has been quite interesting. You know, there's still a huge amount of enthusiasm for the skeptical side. People are really listening to listening to it, and probably more than ever. The other thing is that that something that is almost always forgotten is the huge benefits of having more co2 in the atmosphere especially in australia actually which is a dry uh, dry country because of the increased um, water utilization ability of uh, when you increase the, the co2 because the stomata and the leaves close down so the uh, plants lose less water to get the same amount of carbon which is very very important obviously for growing um, plants so that was a thing I think an eye opener for a lot of people it's something we should um, push much more that the the present day agriculture has been massively benefited by extra carbon dioxide but also obviously from the nitrogen fertilisers and these other things
0: Mm. yeah so it it intrigued me to watch uh, the presentation that he made in Sydney and talking about how uh, over oxygen is actually something that has to sort sort of can I put words in his mouth no i shouldn't i've just used my own words detoxify it's oh there's too much oxygen going into yeah. sort of some plants i'm i've never known or even considered that so look i'd implore our listeners to uh go onto the ipa website and have a um look at the 42 minute i think it is youtube clip of william happer address um going on to just one other we'll, we'll wrap this up pretty soon but one other press release i think i saw through your um uh uh, what was it called, uh, the organisation, the Project for Real Science, uh, was around the Tongan volcano. And it's often talked about uh, on this show that the amount of water that went into the atmosphere uh, was massive and has had an effect on the uh, precipitation that's falling on New Zealand. Um, yeah. Is, is that is that a reasonable assessment? I mean.
1: Look, I don't know for sure. I mean, it's, it's stratospheric water and mm. not just the atmosphere because it got mm. up so high. And the stratosphere is usually very, very dry. It's so very cold. Look, I honestly don't know. I, I, I'm, I, I'm doubtful of it, but I, but I really don't know enough about it to, to really say anything useful. But, you know, this is one of the problems where if you're a scientist and you wanted now to get funding from, say, Marsden, you know, in New Zealand and Australian Research Council in Australia, to look at this problem, you wouldn't have a snowball's hope in hell of getting that cash or it be very difficult because yeah. climate change is the only game in town and anything that that contradicts that you know volcanoes might be really really important to climate and a whole lot of other things anything that contradicts that climate change narrative is viewed very suspiciously you could be a skeptic uh we're not going to fund it so this is one of the problems certainly something which we need to uh investigate as are lots of things about the atmosphere which we haven't got a clue about We don't have a clue about how clouds form. Unbelievably, we don't actually know the the physical processes very well about water droplet formations, how they get bigger and bigger, and rain falls out. Fundamental problems, and you're not allowed to. Very hard to research that because climate change is the only science which you need to worry about nowadays.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry if I um, mischaracterized um, that topic I thought I had read it in one of your uh, press statements so I now can't find it so um if I said that incorrectly I apologize I put you on the spot look um we'll probably have to wrap this uh it's uh we'd love to have you back on the show uh sometime Peter we stand with you on uh your desire to have uh scientific integrity put in front of the public um and that's something that you know we're crying out for we are slowly in this country and I see it and I I watch Australian p- television more than any television actually because it's better than here um uh but we're crying out for some integrity around this net zero stuff uh and yeah. and the spending a uh, wasteful spending of our governments we're just we're just over it and people like you and we have we have a few in New Zealand standing up so look you've been to hell and back um and, and the way I observed and I've been watching you for a long time uh by the way um I think you have endured something that most human beings shouldn't have to endure um and thank you for standing tall and fighting on behalf of those of us that do want this integrity so um, we appreciate you coming on to rcr's greenwash today and look forward to having you back with some really good stories in the future
1: it was my pleasure thanks very much Just Breet boparai
0: and don nicholson with greenwash on rcr reality check radio